Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. And I, I was thinking about the, the name change, and I thought, inevitably, life points us to Bethesda. Y'all will get that after a while. Because in our lives, we stand continuously in need of mercy. Someone said, I had a, I'm thankful for a touch of mercy. Well, I'm thankful for a house of mercy. Because there's a reason why that you wake up with mercy renewed every day. And that's because you're probably going to need it. You're probably going to need it. We need the mercy grace of God every day of our lives and the great thing is it's available every day it's available this day and it's available every day of your life I appreciate uh, my friend brother Donovan Hill and his wife Valerie and they are where they should be and rejoicing with their son in his installation today and that's a great occasion and uh I'm just uh, thankful he invited me to fill this pulpit today because I do have a word of mercy for you. I'm going to turn your attention to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. It's good to be in his house. It's good to be in his presence. I appreciate the worship, our singers, musicians, and all of you worshiping. I appreciate the confetti. I appreciate the presence of God. And uh, the Lord might want to throw some confetti on you today. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Luke chapter 23. Would you stand just one more time as I read these scriptures to you? Amen. God bless you, Brother Hill, Sister Valerie. God bless you, folks. I just wish I had one of those shirts. I didn't get a shirt. I didn't get a shirt. All right. Have mercy on us, Lord. Luke chapter 23, verse, beginning at verse 38. Jesus on the cross. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Don't you fear God? He said, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. He was saying to the other thief, We deserve to be where we are. He doesn't. We deserve this. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I want to preach simply this. Remember me. Remember me. Everybody say that. Remember me. 
Let's thank him for his word. Lord, I thank you for your word. It's powerful, always anointed. I just pray you let your spirit move through me and through this congregation and unite us in love and grace that we would receive what you have to say. Help me speak it. Help us all to receive it. And we give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Rejoice in him right now, would you? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You may be seated. This was not a desired outcome for the malefactors or the thieves. They didn't grow up anticipating and wanting to have their life ended by crucifixion. But it came to this and here they are. And it happens to be that on this day they are crucified with Jesus. One on the left and one on the right. And as you look into their conversation, something stuck with me. One, I want you to picture, Jesus is here and you have a thief on each side. One of the thieves says, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, why don't you save yourself and us and bring us down from here? The other thief converses with that thief and says, hey, wait a minute. We're worthy of this. I want you to understand that we get what we justly deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's not worthy of this. So they have a conversation basically behind Jesus back that he's speaking to this thief. And we deserve it, but he doesn't. And what he is doing is he's reminding his fellow thief. He's reminding his partner in crime perhaps. You know why we're here. You know, if you could remember our thievery and our violent sins, we are worthy. So what he does is he reminds him. He reminds him to say, remember who we are and remember what we deserve. But then he turns his attention to Jesus. And he says something to Jesus to me that is remarkable. He says to Jesus, Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And I began to think, why would he ask Jesus to remember him and not expect condemnation? Because he's the one that just conjured up the memory with the other thief. Don't you remember? We're guilty. We deserve this. But when he turns his attention to Jesus and says, would you remember me? Why would he not expect Jesus to make the same connection to his past that the fellow thief did? In other words, why didn't he say, remember me, Jesus? Jesus, yes, I remember you, sir thief. I remember all you've done. I remember, as your partner said, you're worthy to be here and so on. But there was something about this thief, this malefactor, that he did not think Jesus would see him the same way the fellow thief saw him. He sensed in the presence of Jesus something that was different about him, that he won't see me like my partner sees me. He won't see me like everyone else sees me. He's going to see me differently because this thief apparently had a revelatory insight into the nature of God. 
an insight that would serve us well today. And that is simply this. Jesus sees you differently than everyone else sees you. Jesus sees you differently than you even see yourself. So the question is, how is that possible? How is it possible, not only that that thief, but also we who stand today oftentimes condemned because of our actions and the things that we have done and said, how is it that we can sense this about Jesus? Well, let's go back. I want to share Psalm 103, a few verses, and listen to these verses. These are rejoicing verses. I want you to hear this. Psalm 103 and verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Somebody ought to shout hallelujah. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us, hear this, he hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That's an amazing verse we're going to come back to in a moment. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that Fear him, for he knoweth our frame. Hear that? He knoweth our frame. He remembers, he remembers that we are dust. These verses are revelatory in my mind in relation to what the thief said to Jesus to remember me even though he had a lot of horrible things in his life. Jesus is going to remember me differently. So I want to take just for a few minutes the two parts, two parts out of these verses I just read. And I want to juxtapose two aspects of this text. First, hear this. He doesn't deal with us after our sin. You sin? He doesn't deal with you after your sin. The New King James Version, Version says, according to our sin. The Amplified says, according to our sin as we deserve. The Message Bible says, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Now I'm glad about that. He doesn't do that. You see, with him, we don't get what we deserve. Those who are quick to judge and condemn Focusing on your sins, I'm telling you, mercy rejoices against judgment. In the economy of God, mercy ranks higher than judgment. And as a matter of fact, he wants to bestow mercy upon everyone who is in judgment and who is in condemnation for any sin that you've committed. Let me tell you what we do. We tend, as humans, we tend to default to judgment. We tend to think the negative. Yet even we, the fallen, the born defectors, we can catch glimpses of the good of God in a fallen world. Sometimes we can see the better angels of our nature. Sometimes we can see the vestiges of God and see that even on our best days, God is good to us at all times. 
But most days, we tend to lean toward judgment. Now, maybe not in this church, but let's just say some churches. People tend to bend toward judgment. They begin to look at the negative. As a matter of fact, I could say some names in here. Not church people's name, by the way. But I could say some names in here, and you would immediately think of, if you know these people, you would immediately think of them in relation to their sin. I could say Jesse James, you that remember him. I could say Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer. I could say even names associated with people in their failures in the church. I could mention gossip. I could mention adultery. I could mention fornicator, backslider. I could mention just names and things and people immediately think of uh, the negative, and indeed there is negative associated. Matter of fact, I could mention even names in the Bible. I could mention Judas. I dare say not many people, especially Pentecostals, name their children Judas. Am I right? I'm, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand if there's Judas in the house, because there just might be. Because we associate him with his fallenness. I would dare say not many name their Little girls, when she's born, oh, isn't she beautiful, Jezebel? <laughs> we just tend to not, don't do that. Am I right? Because we always associate people according to their sin. Stay with me just a moment. One thing about Jezebel. I read this about uh, Jezebel in Jewish history. This is written in the Midrash, and it says this. The Bible first says, the dogs shall devour Jezebel in the field of Jezreel. This prophecy is only partially fulfilled because when her body is eaten by dogs, you'll remember in the scripture in 2 Kings, there's a couple things that are left. They leave her feet and they leave her hands. So the dogs devour her, but they leave the feet and hands. So, so the Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary, says this. It explains that these parts remained because of the acts of kindness that Jezebel performed with them. Now what does that mean? Jezebel's home was close to the marketplace. And whenever a funeral procession passed by, she would come forth from her house, strike with her hands, lament with her mouth, and walk ten paces. When a bridegroom passed through the marketplace, she would come out, clap her hands, call out with her mouth, and walk ten steps after him. The account teaches, according to the Jewish teachers, that God rewards good deeds, even in a wicked woman, since the limbs that performed good acts were the recipients of divine loving kindness. In other words, even... In what we consider the worst of people and situation, God can see some good somewhere in there. Now, you've got to understand, the God that we serve is unbelievable in how he treats us. How could it be that he sees differently? How can it be that God can see us not as people see us, not as you see yourself? God sees you completely differently than anybody and everyone and even yourself. And it's because, first of all, he doesn't deal with us after our sins. Why? God does not deal with us that way because of this. The second part. 
because he remembers that we are dust. You see, when God thinks about you, he thinks about you from a different point of origin than you do. When he sees you in the totality of yourself, wrapped and engaged in sin, needing mercy, God's thought doesn't come to you as the point of after your sin. God thinks about you way back before that. God remembers you when you were just dust. See, when God thinks of you, He thinks of you in the purified state, in the innocence of where you were before sin ever tainted you. And God says, I remember when you were just dust. I remember you before sin ever came in and destroyed that which was precious in you. So when he sees you, when the eyes of the Lord are upon you, he doesn't look at you in this particular moment in which you are covered, covered and cumbered in sin. But he says, I remember you back here before sin ever came to you. And what God wants to do is get you back to that place. He wants to get you back to that place where you are void of sin and he brings you to a place of initial remembrance. God's thoughts about you go further back than anybody else's do. Some people, their thought, that doesn't go past the sin that you committed. Some people, that's all they remember. When they get mad at someone in the church or the preacher or somebody or their grandma or aunts, uncles, whoever, they're thinking about that one particular thing in that moment of time. But God doesn't get stopped. He doesn't get fixated on the moment in which you are caught in sin. He says, I remember a place. I remember when you were fearfully and wonderfully made. I remember when you were formed in the womb. And I remember you before sin ever stained your life and I love that person and I want to get back to that person I want to see you again free of sin as you were in the beginning he remembers according to innocence when you were only dust when you read in the creation process in the book of Genesis. You will notice on several days of creation, God remarks, it was good. It's good. It's good. It's good. But with man in Genesis 1.31, he says for the first time, after the creation of man, and I'm sure it was even better after woman was made, he said, it's very good. Do you hear that? Everything he made, he said, it's good. Now, see, we're thinking, man, that's awesome. Wow, look at, look at all this stuff. Wow, wow, wow. God's like, nah, it's okay. It's okay. It's good. That's all right. We got to man. We formed man with his hands. Breathe the breath of life into him. He said, it's very good. So the point is this, that God remembers you as very good. He remembers you void of sin and failure. And he is diligent. He is diligent in this scripture and in this word to bring you back to very good. You might sound very bad. His ability of the house of mercy 
to cleanse you forever changes the equation of sin in you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Let, let me just ask this. Is there anybody in the house that's ever sinned? Three or four of you think here. Okay. All right, I just want to make sure I'm... He wants to bring you back to that place. Sin is a barrier that separates you from Him. Why does God hate sin? Does God hate sin so He can have a stone tablet with Ten Commandments on it? Why does God hate sin? Let me tell you why God hates sin. He hates sin not just to have something to hate. Let me find out what I can hate today. The reason God hates sin is because of what it does to you and him and y'all's relationship. The reason he hates sin is because he hates it so violently. Because it separates you from him. And God does not want to be separated from you. Right? So when God comes looking, he's looking for you. Hey, where's that very good? Where's that person? Where's that person I created in innocence? And when he looks at you, oh my goodness. What is this that's disfiguring them? What is this that's marring them? What is this that I don't even recognize them now as I did before? What is it? It's sin. God says, I hate that. I hate that sin. Because that sin prevents me from getting close to you and embracing you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? He hates it because he doesn't want anything to come between you and him. He doesn't want anything to get closer to you than he can. And he said, I hate what sin is and I hate what it's doing to you. And you might say, well, my sins are egregious. There's bigger sins than yours already under the blood. Can I tell you, we say, well, I've done too much, gone too far, said too much, gone too many places. I've gone a lot of places other than the house of mercy. Some people have been to the house of ill repute. Some people have been to this house. Some people have been to that house. But thank God that in the midst of it all, you can come to the house of mercy and you can find the mercies of God extended to you. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care what you've said. I don't care how many people you've wronged. I don't care. I'm telling you the mercy of God will extend to you because God doesn't want your sin to keep him away from you. Now, I'm telling you, I rejoice in this word, in my life. You might say, well, I keep messing up. Again, that's why when you wake up, there's more mercy for you. See, when you wake up, before you even start your day, God says, okay, I, 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 I hope you don't need it. I hope, I hope you don't have to use it, but hear this. Will you hear me? Just in case. I've got some mercy for you. Now, now, preacher, you have to be careful because as a young person, I, I received the Holy Ghost when I was 13, and that's been at least 10 years ago. And uh, your laugh betrays you. All right. But I remember hearing a lot of preaching in those days about, man, I, I, as a teenager, got some teenagers in the house? No teenagers? Yes. 
I once were, was with you. Yes. Is it you laugh because it's hard to believe or what? No, <laughs> no but uh, I, I remember. I remember hearing particular times preaching about crossing. Oh, you got to be careful. You'll cross the mercy line. Or maybe none of you have ever heard that. But you know, when I read in the book, I don't find anything about a mercy line. As a matter of fact, all I find is the mercy being plenteous. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You can't cross a line that doesn't exist. They might say, are you encouraging us to sin? No, not at all. Because when you get the revelation of what I'm telling you, it puts something in you where you want to please God. In other words, if he loves me that much, why would I want to do him wrong? Do you advocate sin? No, no. I don't advocate sin, but I do advocate the advocate who is able and willing to be the propitiation and the redeemer and take away all of our sins. Aren't you glad we have a redeemer? Sometimes we feel that we've sinned too much. And we're going to be replaced. I heard that too. I heard that coming up. Hey, if you don't, if you, you're going to get in, get out, or get run over. You, you, better, you better just, you know, if you, if you don't do it, God will find somebody else. I remember this young person. Man, if you don't do it, God will find someone else to take your place. Let me tell you something. Nobody can take your place. You want to know why? Because no one else is you. No one else has the same sphere of influence that you have. No one else other than your siblings have the same parents that you have. Nobody else is married to who you're married to. I think. Right? No, no one else has the same friends. My point is this. You can't be replaced because you're so unique. Furthermore, God's not in the business of replacing you. God wants to restore you. God wants to bring you back and say, hey, you might have messed up here and you got this wrong, but I don't give up on you. Even when you give up on yourself, God doesn't give up on you. I wish you'd hear me today when I tell you, when you feel like you're at the end of the road, God is saying, I remember you at the beginning of the road. And I remember how you were. And I remember you in my mind, in my eyes, and in my heart. I remember you before sin ever entered the picture. I remember that you're just dust. And I don't remember you after your sins. I remember you before your sins. Come on, that, that's where the different perception comes in about God. I, I may have told you all this before, but also back in those days. I remember, I remember after that I had the Holy Ghost. What do we say? I made a mistake. I slipped up. Okay, let, let me just clear, clarify all that. I sinned, okay? Now, what we like to do, we like to kind of pretty it up, prop it up. But basically, let's just call it what it is. Sin. Now, I sinned after I had the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm not going to ask you because some of you may have never done that. You know, you're much better than I am. But most of us here on planet Earth, even after we have known God, we have done what we should not have done. At least, at least like a little slight, slight nod from anybody. Yeah, I, know, I know you don't want to give yourself away. And I remember there are some scriptures that scared me to death. One of them as a young person was this because I heard this preached too at fellowship meetings especially. 
just just man just hammered about the, the mercy line and this and that. Man, you and I, I was sitting there thinking, well, I'm. I, I don't think I can make it. I just don't think I can make it. I mean, it's amazing. I'm standing here ten years later. It really is. <laughs> At least. But I remember the scripture. Some of you remember this. Now, this one used to scare me to death. I don't know if you, and that is the scripture in Hebrews that says, after you've known the truth, if you sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice for you. Anybody remember that? <laughs> Try not to, yeah. That, that's the one I like to, man, I, I want to rip that page out. What? What's that? So that's saying, I know the truth and I sin willfully. I said, well, I knew the truth, but I didn't sin willfully. I just absolutely uh, kind of slipped up, you know, right? I dare say everybody who's had the Holy Ghost, if they've lived a few days after that, they've done something that they shouldn't have done. Man, I don't know. If you already had so much mercy, I don't even know what I'm talking about here. I mean, <laughs> but I, I remember reading that as a young person. I remember when I was a young teenager. And I failed God that I went and I laid on the floor of the church late at night and I'm just there crying, boo-hooing. And I'm saying, well, this is my departure from the church. I'm going to hell. There's nothing I can do about it because I sinned willfully after I knew the truth. There's no more sacrifice. I'm going to hell and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And while I was there as a teenager, my mom told someone where I was at and she was worried about me. So she said, hey, go check on him. And he came, and, and the guy who checked on me was the guy who invited me to church in the first place to go to Sunday school. That's why I went. He invited me to Sunday school. He said they would have uh, candy, and they would have snacks, and that there would be girls there. So count me in. All right. So, but something got a hold of me, right? But now here I am. I'm like, I'm doomed. And, and he asked me, he said, what are you, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm going to hell. He said, what do you mean you're going to hell? I said, I sinned. And I know it was a sin. And this verse that people keep pounding to me tells me that there's, I can't be forgiven because there's no more sacrifice. And he shared with me something revelatory that changed my life at a young age to this day. And that is in context. You, you have to put these things in context. And the context is simply this. You see, when Jew, Jewish people, they would offer sacrifice for their sins. And the Jewish converts, after, even after they had received the Holy Ghost, if they sinned, they felt like maybe you know, we need to offer sacrifice. But what the word is saying here is simply this. If, after you know the truth, if you sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice for you other than the sacrifice that Jesus has given. There's no, you can't go back and redo a lamb. And re, are you here? You can't go back and offer another sacrifice because there is no other sacrifice for you other than the sacrifice of Jesus. So Jesus tells us and he shows us. I remember you before, and I will forgive you. Aren't you glad to know there's no sin bigger than the blood? There's nothing you can say or do that takes you to a place where you say, I am too far away from God. God will forgive you if you repent. If you will repent, God will forgive you, and he'll quickly do it. Do you hear that? The Bible says he's quick to forgive. Here it is. 
One time I asked somebody to forgive me of something, and you know what their response was? I'll pray about it. There's some things you don't pray about. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. And Are you hearing me? So it wouldn't be like this. Okay, you sin, you come to God. God, would you forgive me? Oh, let me get back to you on that one. Let me think about it. Let me consider the depths of your depravity. Just give me a little while and come back to me and I'll get with you on it. I need to take a few days to think about your sorry sin. I need to think a a little while because that is so horrible. No! The Bible says he is quick to forgive. If you repent sincerely before God, I'm telling you, he forgives you that moment. You might say, well, I don't feel forgiven. It's not about you feeling forgiven. It's about what the word says. And God is faithful to forgive you. God will forgive you in the house of mercy or in the house that you live in or the car that you drive. If you repent, God is quick and faithful to forgive you of your sins. And somebody ought to rejoice because of that today. Apologies to a preacher many, many years ago. You're not sinners in the hands of an angry God. You're sinners in the hands of a loving God, a merciful God. He's not waiting for the line to snap and watch you joyfully as he's joyful as you go into hell. He doesn't rejoice over the depth of the wicked. You hear that? He doesn't. He's equal to He does not rejoice in the depth of of the wicked. He doesn't say you're getting what you deserve. Till the last breath of your life, God is looking for a way to get in and offer you something that you don't deserve. And that's the mercies of God. The mercies that God has for you. So when he sees you, when the eyes of the Lord are upon you, and you say, God, I'm so sorry. Yes, yes, I'll forgive you because I remember you not after your sin. I remember you before your sin when you were but dust. And I remember, I remember how much I love you. Can I just tell you, there's not a person in this building, there's not a person in this, on this earth that God doesn't love. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We make our list. This person ought to go to hell. This person ought to whatever. And God is saying, I wish everybody would repent because my blood is powerful enough to forgive every sin of every person. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse of all sin and unrighteousness. He works to bring you back to that place. He works to bring you back to pre-sin dust. He wants you to come home. He wants you to find that place where mercy rejoices against judgment. And I say today, I want God to remember me 
before my fall. I want him to remember me before my grievous sin. I want him to remember me before I ended up in a pig pen. I want him to remember me when I was sitting at Father's house and I had everything that Father could possibly offer. And I neglected it and I didn't pay attention. I got selfish and my pride caused me to want to leave Father's house. And the prodigal in Luke 15 did just that. And as he takes the blessings of Father and he wastes it, he wastes his substance with riotous living. And then he does all kinds of sin. And this, this kind of proves what I said earlier. Do you realize he doesn't say what his sin was? And the Father never says what his sins were. But his brother did. The brother accused him to the Father. You remember what he said? He said, he's wasted. He's wasted your money on harlots. He's the only one that said it. Sometimes the brother is harsher than the father. And also, I want you to know this. He didn't say, as we often say, if I can just go make it back to father's house. He didn't say, I'm going to go back to father's house. Because he knew in the house there might be a brother that would remember him after his sin instead of a father that remembered him before his sin. So he said, I want to go back to my father. If I can make it back to my father. I'll go back when he woke up in the pig pen, realizing finally, he said, I, I tell you what, my, my, the servants of my father have plenty to eat. I have nothing. I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say I'm not worthy. Why? Because of my sin. I'm not worthy. I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to say, Father, I'm not worthy. Just make me as a hired servant. I'm not worthy to be your son. I am not worthy to be your son. So in his mind, he starts taking a step back toward God. And he turns to Father. And as he starts walking toward Father, the Bible says that when the Father saw him yet a great way off. Here's the thing. You can take, you can walk a million miles away from God. A million miles away from God. But as soon as you turn and stop and turn, the Father's going to come running to you. He doesn't wait for you to go a million miles back because He's going to meet you as soon as you turn. So this prodigal did just that. And when he turned, the Father ran to him. You hear that? He ran to him. He, he, didn't, he didn't wait. He ran to him. And when he ran to him, he fell on him. He fell on him and he, and he embraced him and he kissed him. Don't worry. He kissed him and he, and he hugged him and he, and he covered him. And, he, and he, he, was, he was so thankful that the son was back. And notice this. So the son like falls down and the father is rejoicing. He's so happy. And the son is down here saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. The father doesn't even listen to him. If you read it, he's not even paying attention to him. Because while he is saying he's not worthy, the father is saying, Hey, servants, I want you to go get that best robe. I want you to go get the ring. I want you to get the shoes. And I want that big calf. We've been getting fat every day. This is why. Because we're going to have some meat today. We're going to have a party. So what I want you to do, I want you to get all that ready. And the son's down here, I'm not worried, I'm not worried, I'm not worthy. And the father's thinking, I remember you before you ever went in the pig pen. He remembers you back in the very beginning. Father remembers you when he held you and embraced you in innocence. And there's no sin in you. 
So Father says, Father says, it's time to party because my son was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. And you already had some. He said, I tell you what, it's time for us to party. It's time to party because it is time to rejoice because my son has come back home. And I'm telling you, it's time to party in the house of God when anybody enters and repents and when you open your heart to God, God is faithful. It's time to party in the house of mercy. It's time to rejoice in the mercy that God has bestowed upon our lives. Because as I close, hear me. He remembers before your sin, not after. So here we are. Here we are, incomplete, broken, maimed, marred, scarred. We are of that thief. We're that thief hanging over here, reminding everybody else of how bad we are and telling the other thief, remember me. We are of the thief that says, remember me. Can you remember me because of my sin? Can you remember me in my terminal illness? Can you remember me in my failing marriage? Can you remember me with my wayward children? Can you remember me with my multiplied failures? Can you remember me in my incessant shame? Can you remember me with my egregious sins? Can you remember me with my haunting regrets? Can you remember me with even my suicidal tendencies? Can you remember me? Can you remember me as I stand all alone, hanging on a cross, about to take my final breath, and it feels like I'm all alone, like heaven and earth both reject me as I'm here. Nobody cares about me. Nobody sees me. And my sin has become my diet and has become part of me so much so that I can't see myself beyond this sin. I can't see myself ever getting past this. And it's eating me up and it's condemning me and it's destroying me. <laughs> Lord, do you remember me? But yes, he remembers you, but he doesn't remember you according to those things. He doesn't label you by the different points in your life in which you have lived. He remembers before sin, before shame, and before condemnation. He remembers your innocence. He remembers the way he tenderly formed you out of dust and cradled you to his bosom. He remembers the time that he was giddy as a father with joy when you took your first steps. He remembers that. So when father sees you, he remembers you before. He doesn't remember you after. He remembers you before. And I say thank you, Jesus. Let's lift our hands just for a moment call on him. Would you lift your hands just for a moment? Let's call on Jesus right now. Matter of fact, it'd be good if we would stand and just lift our hands and our hearts to God and open our hearts of praise unto God. He remembers you. Remember me. Remember me. Remember me. And as he remembers when you took your first steps, after you fall, he says, I still love you. I still love you. And I still care for you. Would you remember me, Jesus?
I say unto you, yes. I'll remember. I will remember you. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Some of you walked into the house of mercy, draped with a world of sin. You say, I don't. There's sometimes even young people, and not only young people, others, they lift their hands and everybody think everything must be fine with them. They don't realize deep down inside the questions, the doubt, the fear, the pain, condemnation. It's like I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to do what you say do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to worship and give and attend, and I'm trying, but yet there's still something in me that says I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not as good as this person or that person. Can I tell you, this person or that person has gone through the same things that you're going through. We say, God, do you, will you remember me? And we're almost afraid to even say that because, whoo, He's going to remember me how I am now. And judgment is going to come. But I say to you, when you cry out to Him and ask you to remember, He speaks from the very middle. And He says, let me tell you. From the very center. He says, let me tell you. You're going to be with me in paradise. You may have been living in hell and came into this house. But he says, today you're going to be in paradise because I'm going to wrap my arms around you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to speak grace to you. I'm going to forgive you. I am going to do these things. Even if you think it's, you're not worthy. It's not about your worthiness. It's about what he's done and of the price that he has paid. And he has paid the price. So right now, I want you to think just for a moment, just yourself. Just Maybe, maybe you could just lose yourself by closing your eyes for a moment so you can... Get rid of every distraction. And would you take it very personal in relation to what I'm trying to tell you? From the youngest to the oldest in this building, I want you to hear me. You are not too far gone. And you're not alone. And you have not placed yourself outside the mercies of God. As a matter of fact, Bethesda has opened its doors as God opens His arms to say to you, this is a house of mercy. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.